Welcome to Sports Spectrum, the sports and faith podcast that brings Jesus back into the conversation. Here's your host, Jason Romano. This episode of the Sports Spectrum podcast is brought to you by Compassion International. A chance for you to release a child from poverty is made possible because of the great work being done at Compassion International, the most trusted child development ministry in the world. For more information about how you can release a child from poverty, visit their website, Compassion.com slash Sports Spectrum. Pray about it. Talk to your family. See if there's an opportunity for you to make room for one more at your dinner table by sponsoring a child through Compassion. Go to Compassion.com slash Sports Spectrum and sponsor a child today. Today on the podcast, we bring you the very powerful story of Stephen Elliott. Stephen joined the military in 2003, served as a member of the elite 75th Ranger Regiment, and in 2004, he was deployed to the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. In the midst of an enemy ambush, he was one of four Rangers who mistook Pat Tillman's position for that of the enemy and fired there. He is one of two Rangers considered likely to have fired the fatal shots. Elliot served the remaining years of his enlistment and returned to civilian life in 2007. And he's written this book. It's called War Story. Sometimes the real fight starts after the battle. And I'll just read to you what it says on the cover of this book. And it kind of takes us into the conversation that we have with Stephen. It says, many of us have a war story, a story of struggle, pain, and loss. We leave these battles forever changed and the wounds we bear may not be easily seen. This is one man's war story, a story of the tragic death of NFL player turned Army Ranger Pat Tillman, told by the soldier who may have killed him, of the shooting's aftermath that plunged him into the depths of guilt, shame, and addiction until unlikely hope emerged, of a man who began fighting for his country and found himself fighting for his soul. Take a listen to the powerful conversation of Stephen Elliott, the author of the book War Story here on Sports Spectrum's podcast. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. First of all, I'll start with thank you for your service, um, being a member of the Elite 75th Ranger Regiment, and just uh, really appreciate all you've done to serve and to protect our country. So thank you for your service. Um, we're really excited to have you here. Um, before we dive deep into the book, because there's such a a large amount of your story. I think that a lot of people may not know about, and a lot of people might remember hearing about, but not quite sure about all of it. But let's start with just learning about you and yourself growing up. What was life like, where you grew up time as a kid into your teen years, and just take us through that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm from, um, a small town in central Kansas called Hayes, Kansas. If you've ever stopped for gas between Kansas city and Denver, you probably know it well, (laughs) but other than that, um, probably not, but that's where I grew up. All my family, um, uh, are in some form or fashion attached to, um, agriculture or the oil business. And, um, yeah, I grew up in that small town and then, um, um, went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, to study, um, business. And I had never, um, you know, I had, I played my fair amount of GI Joe as a kid. Um, my grandfather, who was kind of the closest thing I had to, uh, to a dad in my life. Um, he had spent, um, a year and a half on the Italian front in world war two as an artilleryman. And, um, so I grew up, uh, around him and a lot of other of his peers who, um, you know, odds were, 
uh, were veterans. And, and, uh, that was very much kind of a, um, an assumed just part of the, the family dynamic. Um, as I grew older, I, I, uh, didn't really harbor any ambitions towards military service. Um, I, I was actually moving more seriously towards, um, wanting to go to law school. And, um, I was kind of ticking along, um, at ORU, um, got there in 99 and then, um, nine 11 happened, uh, beginning of my junior year. Yeah. And, um, that definitely, it kind of started the wheels spinning in a very different trajectory for me in terms of, um, what, what am I here for? And, and, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Um, as, as you contemplate, uh, finishing your degree and moving on. And so, um, so yeah, that's just a, a little bit of, of my background, uh, leading up to my time in the military. I know you became a Christian at a very young age as I was reading your book and you described when your faith kind of began for you, you were really young. And I wonder if you could share, kind of the faith dynamic growing up as a believer and kind of how that took shape for you? Yeah, it was interesting because my uh, both of my parents um, were raised in the same small, like I grew up in Hayes, Kansas is a town of about 20,000 people. Mm. Um, that is a metropolis compared to where my folks grew up, which is Natoma, Kansas, of a town of about 500 people at its apex in the 1960s. Wow. And so, um, so pretty quaint. Um, they were in the same high school graduating class, you know, same, very conservative, uh, Lutheran church. Um, and so it was a, an incredibly, um, I, I came to understand it as an incredibly heartfelt, um, stoic button down, um, sort of, um, expression of the faith. And, um, my mom and my dad, they were, uh, divorced shortly after I was born. Mm. And, uh, that was a pretty rough time just in general, um, for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, I mean, divorce obvious, and there's a lot of things underlying that just, um, that there's a, a, a lot of, yeah, a lot of hurt and a lot of, a lot of just relational destruction even beyond, um, the divorce. But, um, my mom herself, I think she would say she kind of had a crisis of faith. She would say that, um, you know, no slight to my grandparents that she, um, had a sense of religion. You know, she had been baptized, raised, um, uh, confirmed in the Lutheran church, but she would say that during that time she didn't know Jesus. And so, um, she came to know the Lord, um, you know, during that time when I was an infant and then, um, she became basically, um, and she's a pretty dynamic lady. She's, um, uh, senior sales director with Mary Kay cosmetics and has been doing that for about 40 years. Um, and, um, and she was essentially just looking for wherever she felt the spirit of the Lord was moving. And, um, so we left the Lutheran church when I was an infant and that didn't go over super well. Um, and, um, and so we, looking back, like we experienced just lots of, lots of different expressions of the church, um, whether it was within, you know, charismatic denominations, whether it was in Methodist churches, Catholic churches, people's homes. Um, uh, I, I saw and experienced, um, a, a pretty wide spectrum of, uh, people and different cultures just trying to follow the Lord. And, um, and so that's, um, certainly a lot to that, but that was sort of what, what my experience was like growing up. And so, you know, when I'm four years old and, um, you know, I told my mom that, you know, I want to follow Jesus. Um, she just said, well, you should tell him that. <laughs> mm, yeah. And so there was no, um, there was no intermediary, you know, and that's, that's the beautiful thing about, about, um, the gospel is that there's, I mean, yeah, we have authority, we have, uh, mentors, we have people who go before us that, um, that we can learn from, but, um, you know, he's, he's right there and, um, and, and, uh, he's, he's ready to listen and ready to, to respond. And so that was, uh, so blessed with um, that heritage that that she gave me in um, in just seeking the Lord because um, that that was really my upbringing. 
Stephen Elliott is our guest here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. His book is called War Story. Sometimes the real, st- the real fight starts after the battle. And I know you mentioned 9-11, how poignant that was for you. And most of us, I guess, age 25 and older now, which is kind of crazy to think how many years ago that that was yeah. 18, almost 18 years ago, but 25 or older, most of us remember exactly where we were and, and kind of the influence that that day had on us personally. Um, you were in college, you mentioned Oral Roberts and you didn't graduate till 2003, but mm-hmm. tell me about, like go a little deeper here with the effect of nine 11, maybe where you were and kind of what effect it had on you in terms of thinking about going into the military. Yeah. Um, when 9-11 happened, uh, I was in bed <laughs> because yeah. it was, uh, you know, college schedule. It was a day I didn't have classes and I was, um, you know, sleeping in and sure. a friend of mine, friend of mine woke me up and said, you know, uh, in the most understated fashion possible, you know, there's something on TV you should probably take a look at. And, um, you know, didn't have any, you know, watched, you know, watched those events unfold. Um, and, you know, had no container, no context for them. Um, they felt very, very distant. Um, you know, you're in Oklahoma, um, and this is happening in Manhattan. Um, yet academically, you know, that it's happening on U S soil. Um, so intellectually that feels like that's, that's a big deal. Um, but I think the interesting thing was like over the next couple of days, just realizing, how just how small the world is. I mean, you're, we all live in our own little enclaves doing our own thing. And, and we, um, you know, even back then in the dark ages before social media, you know, we, we you don't realize how close you are to, um, to just the world yeah. and, you know, hearing, um, all of a sudden classmates and friends who are, you know, frantically trying to get a hold of family in New York. Uh, and, uh, a good friend of mine who, I mean, I lived next door to him in the dorms, uh, my freshman year, uh, he was in the world trade center, uh, in training, uh, with a wealth management firm, um, on nine 11 hmm. and uh, he made it out. Um, you know, he was okay, but then all of a sudden something that was, you know, 1800 miles away, um, became just very personal. Um, and I was fortunate. I, I, I didn't have any, you know, friends or family that I, that I lost, um, in that tragedy, but, uh, it, it just kind of hit home real quick. And then from there, you know, um, it was sort of a, a lot of things came back, uh, for me just, um, I think I had always seen, um, I'd always, res- I mean, I had so much respect for my grandfather and others who had served in world war two and Korea, Vietnam. Um, and I think, even though I had, you know, really good family foundations, I, I think there was kind of two things that, that started kicking in for me. One was, um, you know, I saw the next 30 plus years of my life in an office flash before my eyes. And I was just like, I don't know if I want to do that. Yeah. And if I am going to serve, like, um, now is the time, um, both in terms of my stage of life, but then all, and also in terms of just what's happening in the world. Um, and then I think, so there was, you know, maybe some, um, you know, more outward focused, uh, service oriented sort of ideals there. Um, but then I think frankly, it, part of it was for me, was honestly, um, a self-imposed rite of passage. Um, I, I knew that I didn't feel like a man and, um, I don't fully unpack that. I don't know entirely know why that is. Um, I felt like if I go and if I serve in the military and I serve in a combat unit and I serve in a unit like the Rangers, uh, that pretty much checks a lot of boxes. And that's a, that's a shortcut for 
I am, uh, I know that I know that I know that I am good enough that I am, um, in the brotherhood of men, whatever that means. And so uh, for me, I think it, um, uh, yeah, I think it was both of those things kind of happening concurrently, um, where I, I just felt like I had to, and it was just something eventually it became something that I just absolutely couldn't shake, uh, where I felt like if I didn't do it, I was just going to bust. And so, uh, so that's what I did. I enlisted and, and, uh, three weeks after I graduated, uh, with my bachelor's, I was at Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, starting basic training. And then just to kind of walk us through this quickly, you completed the Ranger indoctrination program, became a member of the elite 75th Ranger Regiment. And so in November of 2003, you're 22 years old and you're assigned to the same platoon as Kevin Tillman. And people might not know who Kevin Tillman is, but his brother, I think a lot of name, people will recognize this name, Pat Tillman. And mm -hmm. uh, when Pat's name comes into the picture, I think a lot of people flash back to certainly he was an NFL player with the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, and a lot of people remember him leaving his football career to go serve his country after 9-11, but also him dying in combat. And, and we'll get into that story in just a second. But I, wanna, I want you to maybe share a little bit of the first time uh, you met Pat Tillman, some interactions the interactions that you had with him uh, before being deployed out to Afghanistan. Yeah, so I, I got to um, I got to Second Battalion, Second Ranger Battalion, which is at Fort Lewis, Washington, in November of 2003. Uh, the battalion had just gotten back from um, uh, deployment to Afghanistan, and um, it's a pretty. I mean, we've seen movies, um, you know, whether it's SEALs or Rangers or whatever. Um, it, it's a the hazing sort of just continues in different permutations as you're a new guy in that unit. Yeah. And, um, and so that's sort of the, that's what's going on. Like, you know, on the one hand you've accomplished something in terms of just getting in, but at the same time you've, you've literally accomplished nothing <laughs> because you're new and you don't, you don't know which way is up. And so, uh, the first time, the company is back. People are just scurrying around trying to turn in weapons and check boxes administratively and get the heck out of there for leave. And uh, we were standing there, we being myself and uh, the other new guys who had just been assigned to Alpha Company. And um, this big, big dude, big relative to most guys who are in regiment, um, most guys in regiment look much more like they just came from the soccer pitch than they do from an NFL backfield. <laughs> right. uh, just because of the nature of the work, you're uh, it's just a lot of high intensity cardio and you'd have to eat a ridiculous amount of calories and stay in the weight room all the time to try and keep any weight on. And so, you know, we're standing there, you know, all kind of skinny and pathetic looking, just trying not to be noticed <laughs> waiting for our platoon assignments. And that's kind of the weird thing. It's, it's like the, it's a little, I don't know, it's a little bit like jail. I've never been in jail, but it's a little bit like the, um, like until you're owned by somebody, you're kind of just, free reign. Um, people, people can kind of mess with you and do whatever they want. And so, um, we were waiting to get our assignments, um, to see what platoon we would go to. And, you know, people were messing with you and, um, you know, you're just trying not to be noticed. And this big guy was sitting there, uh, and he was, um, he was reading Well, he had in front of him. Uh, he was sitting at, it's sort of like the, if, if there was a concierge desk at a ranger company, uh, that was the desk. It's called the CQ desk. Um, and so, uh, he was on CQ duty and he was sitting there, um, and he had a copy of the economist magazine sitting in front of him on the desk, uh, which I thought was curious. <laughs> um, and, um, then he was reading very intensely a book, 
that I believe was on the um, uh, a selection for the Oprah Winfrey Book Club called Tuesdays with Maury. Yeah, I remember <laughs> uh, that book. Yeah, which was also pretty odd um, to see somebody in uniform at a ranger company reading that. Yeah. And, um, so I'm kind of taking that in and, and he, um, he noticed us and he stood up and a big smile broke out across his face and, um, he extended his hand, shook all of our hands, uh, which had, had not happened (laughs) from anybody, uh, at regiment. And he just said, congratulations. He said, you guys did so good getting here. He said, I'm Pat. Um, and, uh, what's going on? Can I help you get squared away? And then essentially it, uh, he and his brother, Kevin, you know, sort of, um, I mean, if we would have had bags to take, I think they would have taken our bags for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just, um, yeah, they were just, that was my first time I met Pat and, um, and that, um, that welcoming, pretty unassuming, um, way that they operated was, um, uh, wasn't confined to me. That's, that's just kind of who they were. Did you know who he was before that? Were you a football fan? I was. I mean, like I, I did, I did not. And yet I was a football fan. I, I mean, I grew up in, you know, high school, I was a sports junkie, ESPN junkie and you know, what have you. And then in college I didn't have cable, I didn't have a TV and I was working and doing school at the time. And so I, I really just sort of, I, I just wasn't paying attention. Um, I had vaguely remember hearing about some guy who left the NFL. Um, but I couldn't have picked him out of a lineup. Um, and I don't think I could have told you his name, uh, which is, that's maybe kind of sad, but I just wasn't following it. So I didn't have much, if any buildup to, uh, him being a symbol of something. He was just a really nice guy who, um, uh, you know, was, was in the unit. So where's faith Steven during your early time in, uh, in the army, where, where is, are you able to kind of practice your faith and stay close and close to the Lord and stay grounded in your faith, or was that a very difficult thing for you uh, before being deployed? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I mean, regardless of your faith orientation, it's hard just because um, the environment you're in is hard. Um, It's hard work. Um, It doesn't lend itself to community. Uh, You get yelled at a lot. And um, so that just, just in general, it's, it's a little bit harder on the spirit, I suppose. Um, So there was that. I mean, in retrospect, in leading up to deployment, um, who I was as a, as a follower of Jesus was very much, you could view it through different lenses, but, um, I think one lens that's helpful is, uh, you know, we're all familiar, uh, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure familiar with the story of the two sons or the story of the prodigal son. Sure. And, um, I think leading up to deployment, um, I was, um, a, a dead ringer for the older son, um, that, I was, I had a seat at the father's table, uh, because, um, I was checking all the right boxes and, um, I, at at no point did I explicitly or consciously say this or think this, but, but my actions and behaviors, you know, demonstrated this belief that, um, I, I had earned my own righteousness and, and relationship and, uh, and that it was not, I understood grace to be the thing that, um, kind of puts you over the top, you know, no one's a hundred percent, but you know, you can be 90, 95 and you just need a little extra, a little extra grace to, to just kind of finish it off. Um, and so I had a very incomplete broken, um, uh, if, if not completely, um, lacking understanding of, uh, of grace leading up to that. And I think I, I viewed, um, the Lord as much more of an insurance policy than anything else, um, where, 
as long as I was trying hard and doing good, whatever that meant, however you want to draw those lines, which when we tend to draw those lines, we, um, we often magically find our, ourselves on the right side of those lines somehow <laughs> that yeah. uh, we're on the good team and, and other people are not. And uh, as long as I was trying hard and doing the right things, which weren't bad things, but as long as I was doing those things, then it was God's job to sort of hold up his end of the bargain and make sure that my life was, um, you know, prosperous and successful um, uh, based on criteria that I had selected. Right. And um, and that seemed to be affirmed um, throughout my college years. And, and at that point, um, you know, had been affirmed in the success I'd experienced in the military. So that's that's kind of who in a nutshell, um, that's kind of, I think spiritually from a faith standpoint, who I was, um, you know, going into the spring of 2004, which is the perfect segue. Cause that's where I was going to take us next in April of 2004, you're deployed to the Afghanistan Pakistan border. And then April 22nd is the day. And you write, this is where a lot of this book uh, takes us through and the situation that occurred with Pat Tillman. Can you share kind of that day? Give us a, uh, a snapshot of what it was like and what took place and um and then we'll go a little deeper yeah so we'd been um you know we arrived in country as part of a spring surge um that you have mountain passes um between the tribal regions of um pakistan and, and afghanistan that are opening up in the spring and so um, um you know they sent us there to do raids and patrols along the border We've been doing that for a couple of weeks, um, and we'd had um, some of those patrols were mounted on vehicles, and one of our vehicles um, had broken down. And the long and short of it was, uh, by the time we got to April 22nd, um, we were at a place where uh, our, our platoon was being commanded to do two things simultaneously. One was get the broken down vehicle um, back to a hardball road, um, an actual blacktop road, um, which was a number of hours drive from where we were. Uh, where we were at, you you wouldn't dare call them roads. Um, uh, it was just, you know, wadis, um, in, in the middle of mountains. Mm. And, um, so we were asked to do that. And also uh, we had, um, fallen behind schedule because we had a broken vehicle and there was other uh, objectives that, um, higher command wanted us to clear. And so, um, long story short, um, our, our platoon leader was essentially ordered to do both of those things at the same time, uh, which necessitated splitting the platoon, uh, which, um, you know, he, he did, um, uh, at his own, um, uh, not of his own volition. He did it cause he was ordered to do it. He didn't want to do it. And so, um, our platoon was split, um, uh, and, uh, we began, we initiated movement on April 22nd, um, um, as the dusk was setting in which was not ideal for a lot of reasons. And um, our uh, our element, our half of the platoon, had been tasked with escorting this broken-down vehicle back to a hardball road. And the other element, which included Pat, um, had been tasked with um, going and clearing this objective. And so um, we initiated movement, um, and the um, uh, radio communication between both elements quickly was lost just because of geography and terrain. Uh, they couldn't talk to each other. And then, um, we ended up taking a different route than we were planned on taking. And that wasn't communicated very well. If at all, we didn't really exactly know where we were going, um, in terms of, um, we, the, the rest of the platoon, um, and we were following the vehicle that I was in. I was manning, a, a, an M240 Bravo, uh, machine gun. The vehicle that I was in, uh, was immediately following the broken down vehicle that was being hauled out, uh, by locals that we had hired. 
so there's a lot of things. There was a tremendous amount of frustration at the platoon level that why are we even doing this? <laughs> because uh, we felt like a very uh, heavily armed wrecking crew at that point, and um, just a lot of the um, a lot of the normal operating procedures in terms of how you would move and what you would all, all those things were. It felt like the tail was wagging the dog a little bit as far as um, why we were doing what we were doing. So there was a lot of frustration um, in in uh, in all of that. And ultimately, uh, we found ourselves following this local truck driver hauling a broken down vehicle through a very narrow canyon. Uh, and unbeknownst to us at the time, that that was the same canyon that Pat's part of the platoon had passed through just 20 minutes or so before. Um, and so, um, as we entered that Canyon, uh, we began to take, um, enemy fire, uh, IED exploded and, um, and eventually small arms fire ensued. And, um, and so we, we fired back and, uh, over the course of the next 10 or 15 minutes, uh, we worked our way out of the Canyon. And as we exited the Canyon, um, there was more muzzle flashes and fire, um, to the right of our vehicle and our vehicle's leader, um, staff sergeant, um, engaged that individual. Um, he shot him and killed him. And then uh, we we basically keyed off of his um, uh, his fire, um, not having any other information to the contrary and not having any idea that there was friendlies in the area. Uh, we fired on that position as well. And uh, it turns out we found out, you know, within the next, you know, 24 hours, uh, we we realized that that position we had fired on uh, mistakenly was um, uh, was a friendly position, and uh, uh, they were responding. Pass element was responding to what was happening behind them in the canyon, uh, seeing um, seeing a, a firefight erupt, and uh, they positioned themselves on the ridge line to try and support us, uh, which which also effectively put them in a position to um, uh, to blend into the landscape unintentionally, and it just created a perfect storm of, of circumstances. And so, um, so we fired there, and um, and Pat was killed. Um, along with the Afghan soldier uh, who was uh, who was killed by our squad leader, and then two other members of the platoon were wounded. So um, so that happened April twenty second two thousand four. Uh, we all knew within twenty four hours it was friendly fire. There was that was no secret um, that was not being hidden. Right. And then we were back at the FOB, um, you know, the following evening, and um, and then that's that's when investigations began to ensue, and we began to kind of put together the pieces of exactly who was where and and what happened. There's got to be a, a whole lot that was going on. That's partially what this book is about. Sometimes the real fight starts after the battle. So tell us about, in essence, the real fight that you kind of had to wrestle through upon finding out that news and, and moving forward in the immediate aftermath. Yeah, I, I mean, you go into you go into shock. You you have no. Um, if I had no context for 9/11. I certainly had no context for war, and I had no context for um, you know losing comrades and I certainly had no context for, um, potentially being, um, an individual who, um, who hurt and or possibly killed a comrade on accident. Um, so, so all of that, um, you know, that's not in a John Wayne movie. That's not, um, that's not hyped in the media's version of war that we're often presented with. And so, um, so I was in shock, you know, we, uh, we went back out, we did a couple investigations, um, there was some understanding of what went on. You know, we all knew it was friendly fire. We didn't exactly know. And to this day, we don't know who was exactly responsible for Pat's death, but it was pretty evident that it was, you know, one of a couple of people, me being one of them. And, um, we went back out on missions for another, you know, 10 days or so. And so it 
felt like a false sense of closure. Um, um, it was a false closure. Unbeknownst to us, there were uh, there was a different narrative of Pat's death being told back home, um, uh, and, and all manner of things that just, uh, set everybody up for failure in terms of, um, in terms of just making a bad situation even worse. Um, and then we got home and, and, um, ultimately, um, that's when, uh, the truth began to circulate amongst the family that, uh, what they had been told about how Pat had died was not actually how he died. Mm. And, um, and so that just kind of blew the whole thing open again. Um, myself and four others were ultimately dismissed from the Rangers. We were released for standards, uh, as the term and sent to the big army. Um, there were no doors in the army that were close to us, uh, other than serving the Ranger regiment. And so I left, um, that summer of 04 and I was frankly kind of happy to just because, um, I was kind of over, over it and just thought getting distance. I mean, if I, uh, don't get me wrong. If, if I, I did not want to leave regiment, and at the same time, just with how it was, um, I was I was happy to to kind of put some distance between myself and that event. And within a few months of of that, um, um, I started um, the shock started wearing off, and um, I started you know exhibiting you know symptoms of you know what someone call post traumatic stress. Um, uh, hypervigilance, depression, anxiety, uh, nightmares, uh, et cetera. And, um, you know, I started self-medicating with alcohol, mm. uh, just trying to, um, you know, grapple with really the spiritual wounds, um, of the wounds that had taken place in relationship laterally or horizontally between people that, that I was in relationship with and served with those, those relationships were broken. Um, and there was uh, guilt and shame that I was carrying for my role in that brokenness. Um, so there was vertical or excuse me, horizontal disintegration of relationship that, that was causing woundedness. Um, and then that ultimately leads to vertical deterioration of relationship between, you know, myself and my creator where, um, he failed to hold up his end of the bargain. Um, I was, I thought doing my best and, um, trying my hardest and, um, and here I'm left in that situation. And, um, why, um, what's the point? Uh, because it feels like you're just sitting in the middle of a blast radius and you've got rubble 360 degrees around you. Yeah. And, um, you know, if, if God was supposed to be your insurance policy against suffering, um, you'd kind of like your premiums back, (laughs) like, um, like, well, I guess I should have been partying and not going to church. I could have slept in a lot if that's, this is what's going to happen. Um, you know, what's the point? And so, um, I was very bitter, um, very angry, um, very motivated. Um, I, I felt like, um, uh, the key was doubling down on my own self-reliance. And so, um, uh, the, the key was to put more accomplishment between myself and the failure of April 22nd. And, uh, I didn't need God for that. And so, um, I walked away from the Lord and, um, focused on earning my MBA and biding my time in the military and, um, and getting out um, intent on being a quote unquote good person, uh, because I didn't need God for that. And, um, I couldn't trust him. I, I, I couldn't trust anybody else. And, um, that's, that's the road that I chose. Hmm. Well, it's 15 years now when you look back on in that incident and there's so much to, to dive deeper in, I guess, walking away from the Lord. I even think the process of forgiveness is something I wanted to kind of get into with you a little bit. Can you take us through that? Because, 
there's a forgiveness that you have to walk through from your from your own self that you have to forgive yourself for that, and then um, forgiveness from others and and with relationships that may have uh, spiraled, like you said, into a, a broken state. Tell us about what you've what you've learned and what you are learning through the process of forgiveness. Uh, yeah, um, it's a good question. I think that um, it's 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 essential. I think sometimes we treat forgiveness as, as though, excuse me, it's this, um, this luxury good that, you know, if you can afford it or see clear to do it, um, you know, that's great. That's cute. You know, congratulations. Um, it is, it is oxygen. It is essential. Um, because we live in a broken world with broken humans. And, um, if, if we are not, forgiving and, um, and accepting forgiveness. It's, it's the same as not exchanging, you know, oxygen and carbon dioxide. I mean, you die. Um, and so, um, I'm, I'm learning the continuing to learn the essential nature of that, um, that forgiving the self, uh, is not about, um, some sort of, um, self image overhaul that, if I can just love myself enough, I can forgive myself. Um, that that's, that's not necessarily, at least for me, that's not necessarily the, the pathway to that. Um, we, we are, um, we are lovable, uh, be, because of who made us and because we're made in, in the image of the divine and we're the only creatures on this earth where that, that is the case. And so, um, you know, unlike both of the two sons in that story, the, the older and the younger son, neither of them understood that they had a seat at the table because, um, that they always had a seat at the table. Um, that their identity was not what they had done or failed to do. And so when that is, when, when that is our identity, um, then, um, we are able to freely accept the grace and mercy that's given to us. And when we're freely accepting the grace and mercy that's given to us by Jesus, then we can do the same thing with other people because it's not about me. It's not about my ego. It's not about my agenda. It's not about my rights. And it doesn't mean that, um, uh, forgiveness uh, precludes consequences. Um, I think that's the other thing too, is, um, sometimes we think, uh, well, if I forgive somebody, it means that I don't hold them accountable. That is not true. (laughs) So, um, we can, in fact, um, one of the most unloving indifferent things that we can do with people is, is not hold them accountable. And so, um, or not be held accountable. And so, um, so I think that's, that's the, it's a beautiful conundrum because the the forgiveness that's offered to us through the gospel is a both and reality. It is the reality that um, your your sin and your depravity is right here front and center, um, and I'm, we're not shaving any harsh edges off of it. And at the same time, um, all you have to do is ask, and it's gone, and there's a fresh slate. And, um, and that is the spirit, um, of generosity that the Lord has for us. And that is the spirit of generosity that we are invited into with other people. Um, and when you're operating that way, it actually makes it easier to have honest, hard conversations about how people are hurting you (laughs) or about how you're hurting them, because then it's not, um, it's not an affront to your identity. Your identity is secure. Um, but your behavior is not great. So we need to have that conversation. So there's, I mean, there's so much. I, yeah. I, I fail at that all the time um, because I'm selfish and I'm prideful and people annoy me 
and I want them to behave in ways that are um, agreeable to me. Right. And um, so I, I have the opportunity to ask for forgiveness frequently, uh, particularly since I'm married and have two daughters. And so uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not lacking for that opportunity. And they're very gracious with me in that. Absolutely. Stephen Elliott's our guest here on the podcast. Steve, what brought you back to God? You know, take us through, you know, in a nutshell, how you were able to kind of recognize and realize all of the things you just stated in terms of the beauty of the gospel and bringing you back to the Lord. Um, it's uh, probably two things. One is it's I mean, it's I can see his pursuit and I can see his provision in terms of relationships um, over the uh, very dark times um, that I, I can't explain. I don't know why he pursued me in the ways that he did. Um and frankly, pain, suffering. Um, you know, I spent um, pretty much, oh, I don't know, about 10 years, um, nine years, more or less, um, having left the faith. And um, I spent another few years after that, still pretty sick and still working through a lot of stuff. And um, so it was kind of a 12-year journey from 2004 to sort of emerging from um, kind of a long, dark tunnel. And I think a lot of that, I don't know, and it kind of doesn't matter if I know or not, I guess, but um, I don't think it had to be 12 years. <laughs> I don't think that was the the medicine that God somehow prescribed for me. Right. Uh, that's just how much crap and pain I was willing to put up with <laughs> before I said, I need help and I cannot fix myself. I cannot heal myself. Um, uh, both from a spiritual standpoint, but even from a relational standpoint, um, I need people, um, and I need the Lord, um, to help me. Um, and I don't have anything good to offer in return. And that is, um, for a, a, a an A-type self-reliant sort of person, um, that's one of the most horrifying places to find yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I had to, I had to hurt and I had to suffer long enough um, uh, before I was willing to extend a hand and say, I'm, I'm hopeless. Um, and that's the point at which uh, hope entered the story. I think many people might be asking and wondering the question about contact with the Tillmans. And you talked about forgiveness and extending it, certainly forgiveness from God. But how long did it take you to make contact with the Tillmans or try to connect with them? And I know, um, you know this whole process of going public there's some pretty cool poignant moments in there of you being able to have that connection with them. So take us yep. through the connections with the Tillmans and just kind of walking through all of this with them. Yeah. It took me 12 years. I mean, I, um, uh, I, I was essentially afraid and, um, was operating from a sense of self-preservation because I was wounded and I wrapped my self-preservation around, well, I don't want to bother them. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and, um, and so I just assumed that uh, I would be among the last people in the world that, you know, they would ever want to hear from. And, um, which isn't fair by the way. I mean, that's not, even if that's true, like that's not fair to assume that of somebody else. Um, and so, uh, and I assumed that I would never, you know, when I left the army, I joined a big wealth management firm and, you know, things were ticking along, uh, fine on paper. And, and it was basically just put as much road between you and what happened and, um, you know, don't talk about it and just pretend it didn't, didn't, uh, it didn't occur. So yeah, it wasn't until, um, 
2016 that, um, you know, I, I had, um, reached out and, and had contact with, um, with the family that was immediately reciprocated in a very, very gracious way. And, um, and, you know, maybe, maybe that time needed to pass before that was possible. I, I don't know, but, um, but yeah, I think, um, there's, there's far more that we as human beings have in common, um, in our brokenness than there is that, um, that should make us enemies. And, um, and I'm just really grateful that, um, that my, um, very, uh, late, um, fumbling, um, you know, sort of, um, reaching out, um, you know, was met with, um, with a tremendous amount of grace. And so, um, so yeah, I, I never, I never would have dreamed that was possible, but, um, that's my problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, Stephen Elliott's our guest here on the podcast. A couple more questions with Stephen. So you have this book, it's called war story. Sometimes the real fight starts after the battle. It's very open and transparent. Uh, I've written a book myself trying to be as transparent as I could in my book. And I wonder for you, what led you to want to write a book like this and put this out there publicly? And then what the main, mes- main message is that you hope to convey as people pick up the book and read it? Yeah, um, it was a process. I, again, I, it wasn't until um, uh, 2014 that I was approached by anybody in the media uh, to talk about it. And even at that point, um, uh, it was a non-starter. Yeah. And so um, – um, but we decided to do uh, interviews with ESPNs Outside the Lines in 2014. And then um, – I kind of thought that was the end of it. And, um, you know, we were approached by some folks to say, Hey, had you ever thought about writing this down? And, and we sort of took some time and just took the temperature of what was the, what, what were people hearing from the ESPN pieces? Like what was the takeaway from that sort of, uh, foray into the public realm? And the takeaway was largely like, thank you, um, from military and civilians alike, because, um, um, you know, one of the greatest lies of the enemy that we're told is that you're alone. Um, that the pain, um, that you feel and that maybe you have caused nobody else could understand you. And if they knew you, um, they would reject you. And so there's a lot of folks that, you know, have contacted me and just said, you know, thank you for talking about it. Thank you for talking about just depression, anxiety. Um, thank you for talking about these things because, um, uh, we're struggling with it as well. And so, um, so that, that sort of just led to, uh, you know, a multi-year journey to, figure out, you know, how to do all that. And then ultimately, you know, I sat down, uh, last January, um, and, uh, and wrote the story down. And so, um, so yeah, it was, I think feeling like the main question we had to answer for ourselves. And even, you know, in 2014, when we did the ESPN piece was why, um, there is plenty of reality TV shows that you can tune into and get your fix of whatever drama that you want. So if we're going to go and actually have this conversation about an event, um, what's the pivot, what's the point. And so, um, you know, we felt and have come to see that the point is that nothing changes in our world without story. Um, I can show you statistics on veteran suicide. Um, I can show you statistics on divorce. I can show you statistics on all manner of things 
um, that cognitively are troubling with respect to how mental health is um, viewed and or treated in our military and veteran uh, veteran uh, societies. And that cognitive awareness um, is unlikely to catalyze change because absent personal connection within uh, the context of story, um, they're just facts and figures. And so um, we've come to believe that not that this is a story to end all stories, um, that if this story matters, it matters precisely because it's ordinary. Not because it's unique. <laughs> the yeah. only thing unique about it that makes it a somewhat of a media phenomenon is its attachment to Pat. Um, other than that, um, the world is full of people who have been hurt and who have hurt one another and are trying to figure out how to heal and, and how to move on. And so um, so our hope uh, is in writing the story that, that uh, we can put that story in service of um, catalyzing change um, within the mental health arena for active duty military. There's there's a number of specific reforms that we think would be um, really helpful and meaningful um, in closing gaps um, as to how the, the military approaches mental health. And some of those gaps are um, you know, very evident uh, in, in just what I experienced, not because anyone was malicious, but just uh, the military culture is not particularly adept um, at dealing with the unseen wounds of war. Um, and yet those are just as deadly, if not more so than the ones that we can see. So, um, our hope is in telling that story, um, that, that we can move the needle forward, um, at a macro policy level and then at a micro personal level, um, you know, everyone, I mean, that's on the, the title of the book. Uh, it, it, everyone has a war story, yeah. um, military or civilian, um, if we're on this planet long enough, um, we're going to have our scars. And so, um, I think, um, that narrative, um, can be, uh, helpful, uh, for folks that are trying to, um, trying to pick up the pieces from those fights. A hundred percent of the author's proceeds for this book will be donated to serving the mental health needs of the military community. And the book is called war story by Stephen Elliott. Steve, this has been great talking to you and I really appreciate your willingness and openness to tell your story. Uh, I believe in that too. The more we tell stories, the more it helps other people open up to know that they're not alone and that they can hopefully enter into a place of healing and moving forward in their own lives. Uh, last question here for you. And we asked this to all of our guests. This is an interesting question, kind of knowing your story and where you came from, but I wonder what you're learning from God right now in the season of life that you're in. What is the Lord teaching you? It's 15 years since that day in April of 20 of 2004 and where you are now married with a couple of girls. What, what's the Lord been teaching you right now? Uh, one day at a time. Um, yeah. uh, not in like a heavy way, but just in a, um, we, we slip so easily into the position of first mover that whatever our ambitions or whatever the things that we feel responsibility for, I have to be the one to make it happen. I have to be the one to make my marriage work, be a good parent, um, you know, make things happen on the job, whatever it is. And, um, that's not a burden or a load that any of us were designed to carry. And, um, I, 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 I constantly get invited into, um, the truth that, um, I get to work, I get to labor, I get to participate in, um, the work that the Lord is doing. Uh, but he's the first mover, not me. And so, um, when I allow myself to sort of walk that out, there's a tremendous amount of freedom there. And when, when I don't, um, uh, it's not very fun, but, uh, that's increasingly a, a lesson that I'm, uh, I'm trying my best to learn these days. Stephen Elliott's our guest here on the podcast. The book is called war story. It's available. It went on sale May 21st and is available everywhere. 
books are found. Stephen, thanks for being here on the podcast. Really appreciate you. Thank you again for your service and wish you nothing but the best. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Powerful conversation there with Stephen Elliott, the author of the book War Story. The book released May 21st and 100% of the author's proceeds will be donated to serving the mental health needs of the military community. Powerful story. Many thanks to Stephen for being here on Sports Spectrum. We also want to thank our sponsors, Compassion International. Go to Compassion.com slash Sports Spectrum and check out the website there. You'll see a list of children waiting to be released from poverty. You can go to the website, pray about it, possibly make room at the dinner table for one more, and then make that decision to release a child from poverty. It's $38 a month, and it provides food, education, medical care, and vocational training. It's all done, all of it done, in Jesus' name. Consider sponsoring a child today through Compassion. Go to the website, compassion.com slash sports spectrum, and consider releasing a child from poverty. Many thanks to Stephen Elliott, and thanks to you for listening. Check out our website, sportspectrum.com. Check out our content on social media as well, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Sports Spectrum. We're also on YouTube. You can subscribe there. And definitely, if this is the first time you've heard this podcast, click the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to this podcast on. That allows you to never miss an episode of the Sports Spectrum podcast. And we really are just excited that you tuned in, that you checked us out. And uh, this interview was a very powerful one with Stephen Elliott and a little different than the ones that we've done before. Uh, Many of the interviews that we do are with athletes or former athletes or coaches or people in the sports industry. And Stephen um, isn't an athlete or a, a person in the sports industry currently, but his story is powerful because it does intersect sports, but it really brings the name of Jesus back into the conversation. And that's what we do here at Sports Spectrum. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time with a brand new episode. Tell all your friends about Sports Spectrum. Have a great rest of your day. We love you guys. This is the Sports Spectrum Podcast.